0: Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wassalatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa alihi al-Tahirin Allahumma salla ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad Wa al Farajah Assalamu alaikum everybody and welcome to this session of Mizan Live We are still trying to finish this book of Shia Imamia doctrine We've reached uh, towards the end of it um, but there's still um uh, some a few more lessons to go that are pretty important actually. Um, last week we we started a um, we started a, a topic that we weren't a- able to finish, and so today I want to finish that inshallah. Which was a it was an important topic because it's a controversial one. Um, it's uh, one that is very touchy and it has to do with Adalat al-Sahaba we talked about that last week a little bit Adalat al-Sahaba as I said last week uh, refers to this idea and notion of how all the Sahaba are righteous individuals and that their intentions can never be questioned Uh, this is something that the Shia has been misrepresented on on. Um, I just want to explain how this has happened, what has happened is that the Shia nowadays in some circles and some settings is known as that school of thought who has a problem with you if you are a Sahabi if you are a companion of Rasulullah <coughs> the moment you, are, you have that title of companion it's as if unfortunately they say that the Shia believes that you are problematic which is not the case at all being a Sahabi of Rasulullah we can say from the Shi'i perspective, a person who's from, who is a Sahabi, the default is that, you know, and forgive me for using this wording but some people might find it uh, wrong but I'll, I'll say it, I'm going to be a little lenient here. Um, being a Sahabi, the default in it usually is that you're a, you are a righteous person. and that, But that doesn't mean that you can change that you can change. No, it's a possibility that a person is a Sahabi of Rasulullah, a companion of Rasulullah, but then changes. Tests come his or her way um, as time passes after the Prophet's demise, even before while the Prophet is alive. Tests come his or her way and that person fails at those tests, in those tests. This is something that the Shia, I would say, school, mainstream Shia school believes in. Shia, when I say Shia, of course I'm referring to The Shia i'thna'ashariyah. Other sects and denominations of the Shi'i faith, they might be a little different when it comes to this as well, like the Zaydis and Ismailis. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. I'm in no place to speak on their behalf. But yes, we do hear that uh, the Zaydis, uh, they won't look at some of the companions of Rasulullah the way the Shia i'thna'ashariyah look at them. So long story short, brothers and sisters, and this is something we spoke about last week, being a Sahabi is not going to be, in the Shi'i's perspective, a free pass to Jannah. And I'm not saying that our Sunni brothers and sisters word it like that, a free pass to Jannah. But practically, we feel that that's what it really comes down to sometimes. That you can't question their intentions. Whatever they do, you have to assume that it's in the be- with the best of intentions. The Shi'i school does not see it like that. Yes, it seems that in the mainstream Sunni school of thought, um, if you are a Sahabi and you really uh, classify as a Sahabi, uh, then you are you are kind of immune in that sense. And, uh, and it shows itself in the battles of Ali ibn Abi Talib, in the battle of Jamal he went up against Talha and Zubair for example and Aisha. And so here the Shi'is will point to one side as the one on the, 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 the right side and the other side as the wrong side. But you won't find that in the Sunni school of thought, of course. Um, usually you're not supposed to actually point this out, that we think that one side is wrong. No, they were both good, they were both on the right side, and, uh, but maybe some made a mistake, or I don't even know if that is the word that is to be used mistake, or whatever it is, as I said last week, I've heard a Kuwaiti sheikh, and when he was explaining it, he was saying one was right, and was one was more right. That's the wording that he used. Anyway, having said all of that, let's move on to what we were talking about. As, as I said, we didn't finish the article. Article number, what was it? 130. Article 130, it says, it was talking about respect for the companions, we reached the part, if I'm not mistaken, where yeah, I, I should have recorded where I left off last week. Anyway, it says that taking due account of this differentiation, it cannot be said that they are all as one. All the companions are one. Each one of them being as just and as pious as the next. Now we get into some of the reasoning for people who believe that uh, if you are a Sahabi, you're good to go and and so on and so forth. Because if you are going to argue for this concept, you have to have Qur'anic proof for it, you have to have hadith proof for it. The Qur'an is used to prove that yes, all companions of Rasulullah are good and righteous. And that the fact that you're a Sahabi means you're good to go as if, right? The moment you classify as a Sahabi, you're set. Um, what's the verse that they that is sometimes used? He says, there is no doubt that in the Qur'an, the Qur'an has praised the companions on several occasions. For example, as regards those who made the oath of allegiance to the Prophet at the time of the negotiations leading to the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah. The Quran expresses the satisfaction of God. So, one of the verses that you will hear a lot, brothers and sisters, is this verse that the Quran says, That Allah is very pleased with you, O believers, when you are giving bay'ah to the Prophet and pledging your allegiance to the Prophet under that tree. So, it's clearly referring to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and Bayat al-Ridwan or Bayat al-Shajara where uh, the story in short goes like this that the Mu'mineen were with the Prophet coming to Mecca after years of exile to, in Medina of the Prophet they're coming to Mecca to perform rituals of Umrah and so as they're getting closer to Mecca there are talks of how there might be an attack on the Prophet's caravan and these believers. And it's a long story how there was negotiations and so on between the Mushrikeen of Mecca and the believers coming from Medina, including the Holy Prophet of course, sallallahu alaihi And so in the end a, a bay'ah was given to the Prophet that, look, we are going to stand with you till the last breath that we have, and we will protect you, O Rasulullah. That was what they told him. And it was a big pledge of allegiance that they gave him because there's a good chance that they're going to be attacked and they're outnumbered for sure. They're far from home and, and, and limited in their resources and weapons. And so there's a chance that they're going to be killed. Yet they tell the Prophet that we are going to be with you forever with, and, and, and um, until the last breath we will fight alongside you. This is referred to as Bay'atul Ridwan or Bay'atul Shajara. Where they did this bay'ah and pledged their allegiance to the Holy Prophet under a tree. Um, It's also referred to as bayatur ridwan because in the Qur'an when it's speaking about it, it says Allah is radi of you. And and radiallahu minal mu'mineen. minin ridwan Okay. In this story, Allah is praising these companions of the Holy Prophet. Very clearly it's praising. So this is one of the verses, brothers and sisters, that is used to show that, yes, if you are a companion of Rasulullah, you're set, because Allah is happy with you, Allah is satisfied with you. But what does Ayatullah Subhani say here? He says, but this praise, they're eliciting the good pleasure, Ridwan of God, relates to them when they swore allegiance to Him. Okay? So it's talking about a certain moment. In that moment, yes, Allah is very, very pleased and satisfied with you, and cannot thus be regarded as evidence of a guarantee of rectitude and deliverance from faults for all of them for the rest of their lives. Right? Think about it. You're, I mean, this ha- this is a an example that you know we can have in our daily lives, where I'm sitting with my friend and I'm like, man, dude, I love you so much. You're, you're the best. You have you are the most loyal friend I've ever got. Okay, so I am happy with my friend. And I love my friend. But doesn't mean two years from now, if that friend of mine messes up and starts sharing my secrets to people and so on, and I find out, and then we have arguments that I'm going to still love him because I said that two years ago. This is what Ayatollah Subhani is saying here. He's saying, look, yes, the verse says, laqad رَضِيَ الله, Allah is happy and is satisfied with the ones who did their bay'ah with the Holy Prophet under the tree. Yes, but that's talking about that time. It doesn't necessarily mean, okay, now that they did that, I'm happy with them and I will continue to be happy with them to to that day of judgment. No, they have to continue being righteous the same way they were righteous on that day when they pledged their allegiance. I think it's a very valid point. For if one or more of them afterwards takes a wrong path, evidently the previous pleasure of God cannot be pointed to as evidence of their continuing piety or of their being permanently devoid of faults. The rank and station of these companions who elicited the pleasure of God is not higher than that of the Prophet, about whom the Quran says. So he's going to bring another verse now. He's making a point here, Ayatullah Subhani. He's saying, "Look, forget about the companions right now. Let's talk about the Prophet himself." The Quran tells the Prophet himself that if you mess up later, you're in trouble. All right. So this there's no guarantee even for the Holy Prophet, let alone for those who. Are companions of the Holy Prophet. So, what is that verse? That the, the Quran says, If thou ascribe a partner to God, thy work will fail and thou wilt indeed be among the losers. In other words, I mean, that's classical English. Let me just tell you what it's saying in layman's terms. It's saying, Oh Prophet, if you mess up and you become mushrik. All of your a'mal, all the deeds, good deeds that you have, all of that is just going to go down the drain. And as a result, you're going to be one of the losers. A loser is a person who gives more, gains less. That's a loser. You're giving your time and life and energy for certain deeds, but you're not getting Jannah in return because you're a mushrik. God forbid, of course, na'udhu billah, that's not what happened with the Prophet. But this is what the Qur'an is saying to the Holy Prophet. There's no... Uh, there's no uh, denying that. Look, it's in the Quran. So if this is the if this is the condition for the Prophet of Islam, for his deeds not to go in vain, not to go down the drain, then of course the same condition holds for others that are companions of the Prophet who are lower in rank to the Prophet. Yeah, I think he makes a good point here. Now the thing is, um, well, there are some things I want to explain. I'll, I'll say later. This kind of verse expresses the virtue manifested by these persons in that particular state when they're pledging their allegiance, right? And of course, should they maintain such virtue until the end of their lives, they would attain salvation. There's no question about it. So it's wrong to say that the Shia say, hey, if you're a Sahabi, we don't like you. No, if you're a Sahabi, that's wonderful. You are on the right side, continue to be on the right side, and continue to do the right things for the rest of your life. That's what the Shia is saying. On the basis of what has been said, whenever we have definitive evidence from the Qur'an, the hadith, or from history of the deviation of a person or people, one cannot refute this evidence by reference to such instances of the kind of praise quoted above. Very important, because this is not the only verse, brothers and sisters, that is cited. You will have other verses as well um, that are cited regarding the companions of the Holy Prophet but those have to do with that time and state that they were in when they were on the right side. If, God forbid, it turns out that one or more than one of them turn change sides or make the wrong decisions, the Shia school believes that yes, you can call that out and you can point it out. So he says, by way of example, the Qur'an refers to some of the companions by the term fasiq. Yes, a person who is uh, disobedient of Allah, is a sinner. It refers to them. So it says, For example, this verse. Surah Hujurat, verse 6. If a fasiq, a person who is a sinner, comes to you, O people, with a, with a piece of news, don't accept it from them. First, verify and then accept. Why? Because they are sinners. They are sinners. If, there is, if, if a sinner comes to you, that means this person disobeys God in other places, and in other scenarios. There is no guarantee that when this person brings you news about others, he might be lying there too, because apparently for him, disobedience is okay. Now here it is, it's talking about a certain story here, and everyone Shi'i Sunni knows about this story. It says this individual, According to definite historical evidence was Walid bin Uqba, one of the companions of the Prophet, who despite having the double merit of being a companion and of having made the hijrah with the earliest Muslims, brothers and sisters. Right? This is crazy. It's like so great that you did hijrah with the Prophet. You migrated, left your home, and went with the Prophet to a, a land far out that you didn't have anything in. So this person, Walid bin Uqba, he's a companion. He did the hijrah with the Holy Prophet, was unable to preserve his good name, and through having lied about the tribe of Banu Mustalaq, earned from God the title of Fasiq, sinner. This is uh, interesting, because, and I'll I'll tell you a little bit of the story. What happened was, um, the Holy Prophet sent this Walid bin Uqba to a people that were maybe the same tribe of him, and he had, or, or a tribe that had beef with him from before. And so, as he's going to that tribe to collect the zakat from them, the Prophet had sent him to, to collect zakat. As he's going to collect zakat, and he sees these people coming to receive him, he thinks that since they had beef with him from before Islam and from pre Islamic times, that they're coming to attack him. He runs away. He runs away back to Medina. And tells the Holy Prophet, they were trying to kill me. And so the story goes on to say that the Holy Prophet and some of the believers, they start getting ready to go and fight these people who had said they have embraced Islam and the Prophet sent his representative to them. They get ready to fight this tribe. That The verse comes, O Prophet, if someone that you know is a sinner comes to you with certain news, don't just take it without verification first verify and to, the verse goes on make sure you verify before you go or else you might accidentally end up killing a, a people that you didn't that you were uh, unaware of yes you had ignorance towards and then as a result you'll become very regretful of what you've done so this, the point of all of this is to show that, okay, this is a person that is a companion of Rasulullah. To the extent that Rasulullah trusts him to go to, to collect zakat and alms from this tribe, comes back with the wrong information, misinforms the Prophet and the people around him. They get ready to fight this tribe because what they've done is totally wrong. They've lied, it seems, and they've said that, you know, we're Muslims, send us a representative, and when the Prophet sends his representative, This happens. I might get some of the details of the story wrong because I'm just telling you off the top of my head, but the gist of it is what I told you. This person comes back and lies about it, and this is what happens. So so this is a companion at the end of the day. He's he's Muslim, he's seeing the Prophet, living with the Prophet, yet the Qur'an refers to him as fasiq. So that means a, a companion can be fasiq at a time. We can question certain actions of a sahabi, in certain times. Taking due note of this verse, Ayatullah Subhani says, and other similar ones, and with regard also to those hadiths in which certain companions are severely criticized, and likewise taking into account the historical evidence pertaining to certain companions, one cannot definitively regard all of the Prophet's companions, whose number exceeds 100,000, as being equally just and pious. As if you remember last session, We talked about this. We talked about how there is a difference of opinion even in the Sunni school of thought regarding who is a Sahabi. But it seems the mainstream believes that if you were Muslim during the time of the Prophet and you saw the Prophet, then that counts as you being Sahabi. So that's a very broad, um, that, that has a very broad scope and applies to a lot of people. The guy might have come to Medina, sat down with the Prophet for two days and gone, and he was Muslim when he did that. That will be considered a Sahabi according to this definition. So that's why Atullah Subhani here says it can reach a hundred thousand individuals. That the Prophet had a hundred thousand companions based on this definition of Sahabi and Suhba. All right, if this is the case, like no, no, it's not. We don't believe that we can. We have to, you know, look at them and refer to them as all being very pious and equally just. No. What is is at issue here is whether we can justifiably regard all of the companions as equally just, he says. It is not a question of insulting them. So he opens up another topic here, which is very, very, very important. And this is what has become a problem in this day and age, especially with people who are less informed, it seems, and less literate when it comes to teachings of Islam. Ayatul uh, so Subhan here is, is saying, so far what we're discussing is uh, whether we can regard all Sahabis with that broad definition as equally just and pious. He brought verses of Qur'an to show that that's not the case. Uh, there's another verse that's there, I skipped as well. Um, anyway, that's one topic. But to see now, if now to slander and insult, and belittle, and all that kind of stuff, he says that's a different story. That deserves its own discussion. He says, it is not a question of insulting them. Unfortunately, some people do not distinguish between the two issues, and accuse those who oppose the notion of equal justice in all the companions of falling into the error of insulting and criticizing the companions. Yeah. So they'll say, okay, you don't believe in the Sahaba. The answer is, first of all, who says we don't believe in the Sahaba? We believe that if you're a Sahabi, that is wonderful. You're on the right side. Stay on the right side and act accordingly. Yes, according to being on the right side. Your actions should match you being on the right side. That's what the Shia says. And then if that's what is said, sometimes it's misunderstood and misrepresented to others. And so what will what will happen is they'll say okay, so they don't believe in the sahaba the way we do, and so as a result they believe that they can insult, and they can um, slander them. No, 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 no. These are not synonymous to each other. It's not the case. If we don't believe in adala to sahaba the way others do, it still doesn't mean that we we believe that now we can just go out and just speak ill of them and provo- provoke others and hurt others' feelings and insult and, and so on and slander and, and so forth. No, 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 no. He doesn't elaborate on that more. Um, let me elaborate more. It's reached the point, brothers and sisters, where people's lives are sometimes in danger because of what other Shias are doing as a result of not believing in Adalat al-Sahaba. It's one thing to not believe in Adalat al-Sahaba and the righteousness of all of the Sahaba it 's another thing to now go out and do whatever you like in regards to them. well, first of all, first and foremost, the most important thing is Islamic unity, and some want to say coexistence, whatever you want to whatever word you want to use. Um, what 's for sure is that this is going to be compromised when you don't keep the respect of the figures of another faith. It doesn't matter if it's Sunni, if it's Shia, if it's um, Christian, Jewish, whatever it is. It doesn't matter, brothers and sisters. This is something that is common sense. Common sense holds that you don't go out there and take a microphone or something and just start abusing verbally figures of another faith, symbols of another faith, rituals of another faith. If you're critical of it, well, criticize it properly. Do it, in, do it in circles of academic discussion. Don't do it where there's people who have strong emotional ties to that individual, to that figure, to that symbol, to that ritual. Go out there and just start like saying it to them. Because why? What happens is, they will come out after you. They won't think. They won't, First of all, let me say this. Usually, the ones who are slandering, are ones who themselves don't have proper maybe logic to explain or the proper reasons and reasoning to explain why they believe in what they believe in. That's first and foremost right there. Lots of times that's what you find. Yes, there will be times that there are some who will have a good grasp of the Shi'i schools logic and, and arguments regarding a certain concept yet they will still go to an extreme of speaking provocatively and slandering and all of that kind of stuff. But, usually this is the case, what I've seen personally even, is that people who um, have a little bit of understanding of Islam and they know how Islam kind of works, they'll understand that being critical is one thing, slandering and abusing is another. And so when it comes to this matter, they don't go out there and speak about certain things go behind the mic and just you know out on the street somewhere and try to hurt people's feelings because those people who are listening who might hear this they're not aware of your logic they're not aware of where you're coming from and usually the ones with that mic provoking others don't even know that logic and reasoning so what happens is you have an emotional person on this side an emotional person on that side what do you get? What is the, what is the, what is the uh, answer to this equation? Yes, when you have two emotional sides that are totally put, uh, on, on, on either side of an argument, they're not going to get along and it will lead to suffering, it will lead to problems, violence and so on. The person loves uh, this individual or that figure as much as they would love their own mother. And when you're speaking in an ill fashion, unnecessarily and unwarrantedly about that figure, they will take offense. And since they can't silence you except through violence, that's what they're going to do. Now sometimes this happens with the, between the person listening and the person who is speaking. Sometimes the person who's speaking, they get recorded, they go online, and a person across the globe is killed. A person across the globe has to suffer. In all these cases, um, Common sense dictates that we be, very, we, we be very careful. It's one thing, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, they know what we believe in, believe in anyway. It's one thing to know what others believe in, but it's another thing to actually see it happening before your eyes. Yeah, there's a difference. And this is why I keep using the word common sense. We don't need a verse of Qur'an for this. Um, the Qur'an very clearly says, when it came to the mushrikeen even, uh, the Qur'an tells the Holy Prophet don't, don't slander and curse at the idols of the mushrikeen because those mushrikeen will turn back and slander Allah. right? So your defe- it defeats the purpose. I think that same logic holds here, here as well. As I said, usually the ones who are a little more knowledgeable, they're a little more relaxed when it comes to these things, it's those who are driven by emotions only, who might do certain things and cause problems for others. And we seek refuge in Allah. Imam Ali he says, he says, look, the problem of people is ignorance. If you have ignorance, Imam Ali he says, I did not find the ignorant one except either going to one side of extreme, either overdoing things or underdoing things. Illa mufritan aw mufarrita, he says. Either mufrit or mufarrit. Overdoing or underdoing. And this is why. Learning about the faith is so important. Because this is something I also wanted to say and I said I'll leave for later, and now's the time. Brothers and sisters, I've said this many times. 1400 years after the Holy Prophet, after all the hadith books have been compiled, after all of the scholars, Mufassireen, have done their tafsirs on the Qur'an. Right? 1400 years later, here we are, we have to understand each side will have their own reasoning their own understanding of things their own interpretation of verses and hadiths they will have their standards for authenticating hadiths and so we have to understand that's just their argument and they and, and they're convinced by it we have to get along there is no choice i feel sometimes this is allah's test for this is allah's test for the entire muslim ummah like let me see you guys The Prophet came, the Qur'an is there, you have your own hadiths, I gave you your intellect, let me see. Can you figure out certain basics amongst yourselves? Get along at least, learn to get along. That's the problem that we have right now, is that unfortunately, due to the, um, the wrong actions of some, these different schools of thought are not getting along, and sometimes it leads to bloodshed. The point I'm trying to make is every side has their reasoning. Understand, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that we can't ruin everything just because they don't uh, accept what I believe in. And it's a uh, it gets worrying sometimes when you listen to some youth when they're discussing certain polemics and 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 issues like that when they say, "Yeah, look, this is what are, this is like obvious. Look what the verse of the Quran says. How How off can you be not to get it? Like this is what it's saying, Imam Ali this. Imam Ali is, you know, of course he's the the chosen one. Okay, that's how you see it. You're making it sound like this is obvious reasoning and everyone has to get it. And if whoever doesn't get it is either dumb or has bad intentions. Yeah, but that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Um, So it seems. To conclude this discussion, he says, we should like to stress that the Shia of the imami school do not believe that the respect we have for those who have had the privilege of companionship with the Prophet should prevent us from objectively evaluating their actions. We hold that association with the Prophet cannot on its own give rise to immunity from sin for the rest of one's life. The basis for this evaluation by the Shia is derived from Qur'anic verses, sound hadiths, corroborated historical sources, and from basic common sense. Someone might ask, okay, well, this is obvious. And as he just said, it's common sense. Why? Why is it the case that um, people don't understand? Brothers and sisters, we have to understand that the hadiths play a major role in our in the Sunni school of thought you will find many hadiths that are speaking about sahaba for example the prophet says uh, if i get the wording right in the ashabi kan nujum yes bi something along those lines this is a, a hadith that is found in Sunni sources the holy, holy prophet said my ashab are like the stars in the sky Whichever one of them you follow, you will gain guidance. So a person who's stuck at sea, or stuck somewhere in some forest or something, by looking at the stars, they can find their way, they can be guided, yeah? And so this hadith, that's what it's saying, according to Sunni sources, not our sources. The Shia doesn't do not have these in their sources. Okay, hadiths like this, and tens, maybe hundreds more of hadith that are like this, we have to understand, are going to be teaching people that you have to you have to hold them that high then you follow them any one of them you follow you will find guidance brothers and sisters this is very important that this is how this is where it's coming from the hadith the Quran is never clear about something like this this much regarding the Sahaba it's hadiths yes the Quran keeps things vague it's the hadiths that uh, get very particular in the Shi'i school regarding imamah and in the Sunni school regarding suhbah and being a sahabi. Alright, so if you have these hadiths, brothers and sisters of, my, of the Shia school, you can't expect to go against these hadiths and, and tell people like, hey, why, why, why are you following them? It makes sense that every person is responsible for their own actions. So let's just not be uh, blindly following a certain group. What well, the, the, the Hadith, according to them, is saying that is saying that. Any one of them you do Iqtida of and you follow, you will find Ihtida in, which means guidance. Ihtida coming from Hidayah. What I get out of this Hadith is that. Um, if Ali ibn Abi Talib is on one side in the Battle of Jamal, and Talha Zubair are on the other side in the Battle of Jamal, any one of them I follow should get me to Allah. That's what I can get from such a hadith. If I want to really uh, milk that hadith for what it's worth, that's that, for what it's worth. That's how far you can really go with such a hadith. So, brothers and sisters of the Shi'i school of thought, we have to understand there are a lot of variables here involved. We can't just say, oh, pshh, of course, you know, the Sunni is wrong and the Shia is right. Just like how the Sunni can't say, "Psh! of course the Shia is wrong and the Sunni is right. No, no, no. Each side has to acknowledge the academic competence of the scholars of the other side. Yes, and leave it amongst those scholars to go back and forth and, you know, have peaceful, respectful dialogue amongst themselves. Because this is what it will come down to, the hadiths. Or else the Qur'an, I'm going to say it here, the Qur'an keeps it vague. The Shia want to use certain verses to prove imamah, and that is fine, but they have to understand that these verses, like Surah Baqarah verse 124, that Allah Tabai and others have used, and we have in our hadiths even, using that verse to prove imamah of Ahlul Bayt, who are we kidding? At the end of the day, the verse is not directly saying it. Yes, it takes some academic endeavor, and one can come to this conclusion. I personally am a fond uh, follower and supporter of that notion, that Baqarah 124, if you work on that verse, and you connect some other verses to it, you can come up with some nice things regarding imamah of Ahlul Bayt even. But it's a a complicated uh, sequence of uh, argumentation to reach that point. Some people won't make it. And so the Shia can't say, oh look, there's verses that say it. No, 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 no. There are verses that imply it, and it takes hard work to get there. And the Sunni has to also acknowledge. The Sunni also has to acknowledge that the verses that are cited to prove this concept of Adalat al sahaba at best they imply there is not one verse in the Qur'an that you can actually say that this is the actual wording and face value of the verse that it's saying if you're a sahabi you're a companion you're good to go you won't be questioned your intentions are probably good and so on okay this has to be acknowledged by both sides and it seems that there's a reason why Allah kept things vague a little bit right or else the Quran might have been compromised the Quran is protected in this way that when it comes to these touchy subjects it keeps things vague so the Shia will have an argument. The the Sunni will also have an argument, and they have to learn to get along. Yes, if a certain verse was very clear about something, very clear that anyone who reads it and sees it just takes it at face value, understands something, then yeah, there would be a problem. But we don't have that regarding imama, and regarding suhba. Both sides same thing. The only thing we do have about the Quran that one can swear, one can say one hundred percent, it's clear. When it talks about Tawheed, when it talks about Nubuwa of the Prophet, when it talks about Ma'ad and Resurrection, when it talks about how our actions are going to be rewarded and punished for on the Day of Judgment, all of that, that's what the Qur'an is very clear about. When it comes to these more complicated issues, the Qur'an um, keeps things vague. And only at best will imply certain things. Okay. Alright, so with that, Article number 130, which I will call article the, the controversial article of this book, has ended. As you noticed, um, or probably noticed, this article has been kept very, very concise. He only addressed one of the verses that the Sunni school might cite for its claims of Adalat al sahaba That was it. He didn't talk about anything else. They have a ton of arguments. And even people from Ahl-Sunnah have have critiques on that as well. As I said, it's a complicated topic, um, and so there will be theses written on uh, these, on these, on this topic, and the same with the Shia school on imama as well. He kept it very concise. I just want you, you to know that these have this topic has tons of books, volumes upon volumes of books written on it. So uh, this what we covered here in no way. I can even say scratches the surface uh, in this regard. It's, it, it's, it will be an overstatement to say we scratched the surface even here. No, <laughs> we, didn't do, we didn't do nothing. <clears throat> Just some familiarity with the discussion. That's about it really. Very, very basic familiarity. That's it. Let's move on to article number <clears throat> 131, which speaks about the love for the Prophet and his family. Alright, so these topics now are going to start getting easier and easier and less controversial. Now, I would say that this article, the reason why he's bringing it, in and of itself it has value, but it also helps him drive a point home that he's going to cover in article 132, the one that comes after this one that we're covering. So what is he trying to say in article number, number 131? What he's saying, what he's talking about is that um, it is a given in Islam, it is something that every Muslim believes in <laughs> that we need to love the Holy Prophet and that we have to love the Holy Ahlul Bayt. He says the cultivation of love and affection for the Prophet and his family is one of the principles of Islam, stressed by both the Quran and the Sunnah. The Quran says in this connection, in this regard. وتجارة تخشون ومساكن ترضونها أحب إليكم من الله ورسوله وجهاد في سبيله فتربصوا حتى يأتي الله بأمره والله لا يهدي القوم الفاسقين so in this verse it says say if your fathers your sons your brethren meaning your brothers your siblings your wives your tribe the wealth you have acquired and your merchandise for which ye fear there will be no sale and dwellings ye desire are dearer to you than God and His messenger and striving in His way, then wait till God brings His command to pass. God guides not wrongdoing folk. Meaning God doesn't guide the wrongdoing folk. In another verse it says, those who believe in Him, the Prophet, and honor Him and help Him, and follow the light which is sent down with Him, they are the successful. Alright, so he brings two verses here trying to tell us that, look, love of the Holy Prophet is a given. Now in that first verse that I recited where it says, your sons, your fathers, your brothers, your wives, your tribe, your wealth, your, your the merchandise you have, the reason it seems that the Qur'an brings a list of things, it could have just said, if anything is out there you love more than Allah. It gave a lot of examples too, because the Qur'an knows that if it doesn't give examples, people might not relate. And so, Sometimes it has to be very direct and give examples. Like, look, these are the things that you're going to be struggling with. If any of these things, you love them more than the Prophet, oh my God, you're in trouble. You are the, you are, what is the word? Wrongdoing folk. And you won't be guided. So the Holy Prophet has to be the most beloved out of everything of this world that you have. In this verse, God refers to the successful as having four special features. Believing in the Prophet, honoring and revering him, helping him and following the light that was revealed with him. So now we're going to the second verse. In that second verse, there are four conditions. Yes, number one, believing in the Prophet. Number two, honoring and revering him. Number three, helping him. Number four, following the light he came with. Taking note of the fact that helping the Prophet comes third in this list, it is altogether clear that the honoring him, which is the same as venerating him, cannot be restricted in time to the period of his life just as believing in him also mentioned in this verse cannot have any such restriction. Some people might say, oh, loving him was for when he was alive. Ayatollah Subhani, he kind of gets into the tafsir here, but he doesn't really open it up too much. Um, All I'll say is this, these four conditions that are in the verse, believing in the Prophet, uh, honoring him and revering him, and defending him, and following the light that he was sent with, in all of these, for, he says these are not restricted to the time of his life, it happens after his life as well. It holds for after his death as well. As regards loving his family, so that's for loving the Prophet. As regards loving his family, it suffices to note that the Qur'an establishes this, establishes this as a reward that believers owe him for the fact of having received from him the prophetic message. He says, look, the Qur'an says you have to love his family, his close ones, his Qurba. Because that is the re- only thing that God is asking in return for Him being, bringing revelation to you, O people. He brought you revelation. What can I do in return? Love His, love his relatives, love His close ones. The verse says, um, Where is it? Famous verse. I don't ask you O oh, people of any ajr and reward for bringing you uh, guidance and revelation except love, I ask for love for my family my close ones, my qurba so Ayatul says look the Prophet's family and the Prophet himself love has to be there and this is why nasibis are so evil nasibis or nawasib these are people who had animosity towards Ahlul Bayt because this is something that's in the Quran come on the Prophet says, I ask for one thing, and that's love of my family. And so these are his descendants, yet they don't like them. now Sib, necessarily you won't find too many of them in this day and age. You want, It's hard to find people who will say, we just dislike the Holy Prophet's family. No one's going to ever say that. Uh, because look, it's, as I said, it's a clear thing that we have in the Qur'an even, that you love the Holy Prophet's family. Um, but yeah, Nasibis are a problem and they have been a problem in the past during the time of the Bayt Okay. So that was Quran. Hadith in this regard. Regarding the Holy Prophet, it says, The Prophet said, That none of you has proper faith until they love me more than uh, their children, when Nasi Ajma'in, and all other people. Number one. Number two, another hadith says there are three things which show that one has truly tasted the, the, the taste of faith that there is nothing more beloved to one than God and His Prophet. That's one of those three. Number two, that a person is willing to burn in a fire. Burn in a fire rather than instead of giving up their faith. That's number two. And number three is the third the, the the third thing that shows that you have you have tasted faith and iman is that you love for Allah and you hate for Allah subhanahu wa taala. All right. So I don't want to get into the hadith and explaining it. Point being, the first one out of these three was that there is nothing more beloved to you than Allah and His Prophet. So that's a hadith regarding. The Holy Prophet. Two hadiths he gave us. Also he says I'm going to give you two hadiths regarding love of the family of the Holy Prophet. A similar hadith as to the first hadith we had. لَا يُؤْمِنُ عَبْدٌ حَتَّى أَكُونَ أَحَبَّ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ نَفْسِهِ وَتَكُونَ أَحَبَّ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ I, None of you will have iman and faith until I am more beloved to them than themselves and my family is more beloved to them than their own family. Yes, so that's one hadith. Another hadith. In another hadith, it says, "Man ahabba hum Allah, wa man abgadahum Allah." That whoever loves these at the Ahlul Bayt and the Aitra family of the Holy Prophet, Allah loves them, and whoever hates them, Allah will hate them. Now he says. Um, up to now we've been considering the reasons for the principle of loving the Prophet and his descendants. Now the following questions may be proposed. May be posed. What benefit is derived from the Ummah from loving the Prophet and his descendants? In what manner should the Prophet and his family be revered and loved? He says as regards the first question, let us recall that love for a person of perfect virtue is itself a ladder leading one up to perfection. You want to be good? Well, f- love the ones who are good, you'll become like them he's saying. The point that he wants to make is this though, and it's a very important point. He says when you love them, you act like them, you try to be like them. And so then he starts getting into this idea of, okay so then just loving them won't be enough. Loving them and acting the way they acted, the way they were is important. And this is something that speakers and lecturers are always speaking about. We have hadiths for it, that look, you can't just say you love us, or you love the Prophet, and then you don't follow his example. A person who, this is a hadith, and it's a kind of a scary and harsh tone and wording, but anyway, the Imam, Imam al-Baqir, he says, whoever uh, disobeys Allah, he's our enemy. But I love you, Imam Bakr. baqir Well, if you love me, you got to listen to me. you got to go by, take my example uh, and, and, and be and be like me. Try your best to be like me. You can't get away with just loving and expecting everything to be good. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> Some people have that mentality. There can be no doubt that one of the ways in which love of the Prophet and his family radiates is through emulating them in action as has been mentioned. But as for the other modes of radiance of this state, they can be summed up as follows. Those who express any speech or action that is universally understood as being a sign of such love and as an honorable means of manifesting it will be regarded as acting in conformity with the principle of love of the Prophet. What's he saying here? He says he's trying to go back to something we talked about in the past. In the past when we had that discussion of bid'ah and innovation in religion, and you know, celebrating the birth of the Prophet and these kinds of things, he said if they fall under a certain category, it's not bid'ah anymore. A category of those things that Islam has generally encouraged, but hasn't specified the examples for it. He used the example of loving and venerating and revering the Holy Prophet and upholding his image. The example he gave for this was the celebrations of the Holy Prophet's birth. Yeah, that's what he used. Here he's repeating what he said before. He said, look, when we love Him, these things happen. We follow Him, one. Two, we're living up to that command by God that says revere Him, honor Him, by doing things like this. So when we love Him, yes, that allows us to live up to those commands that tell us to love Him. How? By expressing it, manifesting. How does it manifest, for example, when we celebrate their birth, when we get together and discuss their merits, when we teach our kids about them, and so on and so forth. And finally, this last, um, well, this last paragraph he has here, um, is not too important, I'm just going to leave that. So to end, inshallah, we're going to end here. Article 131 is talking about the importance of love of Ahlul Bayt, love of the Holy Prophet, okay? Now, if that's the case, he says, and this is our reasoning for um, loving the Ahlul Bayt, because the Qur'an told us, the Prophet told us, there's hadiths for it, then at the same time we also can conclude and and infer that um, when there is a hardship that befalls them, we get upset. So remember I said in the beginning of this article that look, he is talking about Article 131 for a reason, love of Ahlul Bayt, love of Prophet, because he wants to get something out of it in Article 132, this is what I was talking about. What I was talking about was that he's going to use that same reasoning to prove that if the Ahlul Bayt are upset, if something befalls the Ahlul Bayt of tragedy, then we, for the same reason we're happy for their happiness, we will also be upset for their sadness as well. And that's something we'll talk about more next week, inshallah ta'ala. Well, not next week, in our next session, actually. Um, we will have to put out a flyer for the month of March and what programs we will be having. Uh, keep an eye out for that. I will tell you this now, that uh, we will not be having Mizan Life session next week. Um, but yeah, when, when we will be having it, inshallah, Keep your eye, keep an eye out for that. And you'll see that soon, inshallah. Till then, Keep us in your du'as. Wassalamu alaikum wa wabarakatuh.